Hey there, Internet, and welcome to The Stakes, MTV's resolutely tangential political podcast. I'm your host, MTV Politics and News Director Holly Anderson, coming to you from the fiery chasm of our Los Angeles studio. This week on the show, a comics journalist on what her watercolors capture that traditional journalism doesn't, and a poetic meditation on shame and justice. But first, we speak with two activists in Charlotte, North Carolina, about what's been happening in their city since the shooting death of Keith Lamont Scott by Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer Brentley Vinson. Four days after claiming they saw Scott come out of his car holding a gun, police released another statement saying that what actually caught the officer's attention was Scott rolling a, quote, marijuana blunt. According to this revised version of events, the officers say that they saw Scott with his gun inside the car and subsequently drew their weapons and tried to smash a car window. At this point, they claim Scott exited his car, still holding a gun, and that's when they shot him. Charlotte police finally released video footage from the shooting, along with the second statement. According to a New York Times report from earlier this week, the video footage shows Scott's right hand to be apparently empty, and the video gives no clear view of what, if anything, was in his left hand. We should note here that Keith Lamont Scott was right-handed. Residents of Charlotte took to the street where he was killed that same night, and they've continued gathering nightly since then. To give us some more context to the reaction in Charlotte, we turn to Bree Newsom, a familiar name if you've been following the Black Lives Matter movement. Two people were arrested earlier today after one of them removed the Confederate flag from the flagpole outside the South Carolina State House. She spoke to our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith. But just before we get to their conversation, let's hear a clip from a video gone viral featuring a nine-year-old lifetime resident of Charlotte addressing her city council this past Monday evening six days after Scott's death. We are black people and we shouldn't have to feel like this. We shouldn't have to protest because y'all are treating us wrong. We do this because we need to and have rights. So Brie, we just played the clip of uh, young Miss Ziana Oliphant. Um, at the city council meeting, the first city council meeting in Charlotte after Keith Lamont Scott was killed by police on September 20th. Can you tell me what your reaction was when you heard that little girl crying as she essentially articulated the message of Black Lives Matter in a way that I'd never really heard it before? Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, she is giving voice to the children of Charlotte to the black and brown children of Charlotte, um, and not just of Charlotte, but of America. I mean, Charlotte is um, an example of what we see in urban areas uh, across the United States. We have a lot of prosperity uh, going on here. We have a lot of um, um, wealth being built here in Charlotte, but it is not being equally felt. We have um, an enormous amount of wealth inequality um, Charlotte is highly segregated, uh, both economically and racially. A child born into poverty in Charlotte statistically actually gets poorer over the course of his or her lifetime. Um, sometimes it takes a child, sometimes it takes the voice of a child to bring um, some sense into everyone and to really to really shake everyone's conscience and get everyone to um, re-examine and remember what it is that we're talking about. This is the, the we need to re-examine what kind of futures 
we're making possible for the children in this city. Of course, a lot of people know you from your actions last summer in Charleston, South Carolina, in which you climbed the flagpole in front of the state capitol, took down the Confederate flag, and uh, became, frankly, a hero to a lot of folks out here. Bree, can you tell me about the activist spirit in Charlotte since Keith uh, Lamont Scott's death and what you've seen on the streets and, and how you feel like it's been constructive or not constructive? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I am a co-founder of a grassroots organizing collective called Tribe here in Charlotte, and many of the folks involved in Tribe were a part of the Confederate flag action. And in fact, we formed back in 2014, right after the non-indictment came down in Ferguson, because when we looked at Ferguson, we, you know, we could tell that it was only a matter of time before something like that would happen here in Charlotte. Um, and so we have been, you know, not not completely caught off guard by this happening. Um, I'm sure you are familiar with the case of Jonathan Farrell. This was yes. a young man who was killed by police back in 2013, and we um, his uh, killer was just acquitted last year. So so this is really this has really kind of been building um, building to this moment. First of all, you know, obviously the protest began on Old Concord Road where Keith Scott was killed. Yeah, that's right near Bank of America Stadium, right? About 15 minutes away? Yes, yes. So not far not far from uptown, but um, but it's important to understand, like, the protest began immediately after he was killed because of what people witnessed. Right. Um, and then, of course, you know, the police showed up and they started tear gassing people. That only escalated it. The decision for the protest to move into uptown, I mean, that really is an economic statement that's being made by the African-American communities that have been forced to the margins over the decades. Um, and, and so, you know, I really, I, I support that. Like, I think that it has been more constructive than deconstructive. Obviously, you know, in the media, folks want to talk most about broken windows um, and, you know, protecting this, this property. But um, we would like to see that same kind of concern shown for the lives of the children, the lives of the people of Charlotte. You know, you know the, the history country. of Charlotte itself, I mean, with this yeah. so-called urban renewal, taking, uh, you know, black communities that had been in an uptown, out of uptown, and forcing them out, and all this stuff we've seen in so many different cities. That historical tension has always been there, but yet we see in, in Charlotte, as with many other cities, Ferguson, Baltimore, these actions being led by young people like yourself. So, I mean, one of the things that definitely struck me this week when I was looking out there, these are very young people. I mean, like teenagers to, you know, maybe like in their 30s at the oldest. Um, and I mean, there, there have definitely been older folks out there with us. Um, and I think that there's a few reasons why that has happened. Um, I think, yes, there is. Uh, some of the issues that we are dealing with are, are very similar, um, do have historical parallel to issues that older generations dealt with. But I think also with this younger generation that, that, you know, came up under a black president, I think that there's a greater sense of entitlement in some ways to the American dream. There is like mm. this, um, this kind of refusal to cede anything to, to accept that we are supposed to be second class in any kind of way because we are not white. I think that there is just much more of a pushback. There's much more of a pushback against the politics of respectability, I think, because, again, we have witnessed um, the election of the first black president, and we've also witnessed all the ways in which he's been disrespected. I mean, let's look at the recent conversation that's been going on um, in national politics. You have one of the candidates running for, for president, and there's, you know, still raising this question over whether or not 
um, the first black president was legitimate, was born in this country, and all the kind of you know racial undertones right. um, that go along with it, the questioning of whether you can really be American if you're not white. Um, I think we benefit in a lot of ways from the movement that happened in the 60s. In the 60s, this was a new concept, black is beautiful, um, you know, black power. These are all new concepts. These are not new concepts for this generation. Um, and so this is not, you know, there, there's not this new um, kind of idea that's being built around that way. There is just this realization that these systems are still in place and that until these systems change, nothing's going to change. We've had about, you know, 50-plus years of really trying, you know, integration and affirmative action and these other programs that are, are really kind of like Band-Aids for the system. And I think that, that part of what is um, really invigorating or really driving um, this newest movement of young people is this, is really more of a revolutionary spirit, that these systems are fundamentally anti-black and have to be changed. One of the other things that uh, I think may be driving this also are the fact that the you know videos of these killings are being displayed on the news they're in our twitter feeds they're everywhere and i question sometimes whether or not that's making us numb to them um making us numb to the spectacle of black death what what's your take on that i'm not sure i ha- i have mixed feelings about it um i think that i think that in some ways the police video it has definitely helped in raising awareness to it so i think that that there has been a certain amount of um, disbelief about police brutality, or at least about the scope of it, um, until we started having access to these videos. Now, on the other hand, I do think that in some ways it can make us numb to black death, and in a lot of ways I think that these these police killings that we're seeing, we're seeing are modern lynchings, and in that way I do have some um, reservations about how much we are displaying these you know scenes of of black death because it is very reminiscent of days when you know people used to set up picnics uh people used to set up picnics and watch people be lynched and trade postcards and so i'm not sure um i'm not sure how much people are moved if they were not already in a place to be moved keith lamont scott's video of course it was only released after a lot of activism in pressure put on the police department initially they refused to release it and, and since they really only released a portion of it because, you know, one officer apparently neglected to turn on his camera and there's no sound. But that said, that might be the best North Carolina gets for a good long while. There's House Bill 972, which goes into effect on Saturday, October 1st, which would prevent the release of police shooting videos. Can you tell me a little bit about what your feelings are about that and whether or not that's being discussed as part of the the activism? I mean, P- Governor Pat McCrory obviously made some casual kind of, you know, inappropriate remarks, like you mentioned, uh, around Keith Lamont Scott's death. And it, the insensitivity really goes further than that. It goes into the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I've Chief Putney has, has said that after October 1st, once HB 972 goes into effect, um, you know, he, in order for us to get more access to the Keith Lamont Scott video, we will have to go through the court. That's not true. So any video that was made before um, October October 1st, it, we can still demand that that is still public record. HB 972 does not apply to that. Now, after all these videos that are made after October 1st, and I'm sure there's going to be a case that comes up, um, just because of the pattern of CMPD, I'm sure there's going to be a case that comes up here in North Carolina somewhere where there's a questionable shooting. 
um, we're trying to access the video, and now we're going to have to go through the court systems, and then that's going to become um, another fight. We're calling, obviously, now for the repeal of HB 972, but the way that the court systems work, the, the law has to go into effect first before we can actually fight for its repeal. Um, and I, I, I just want to lift up quickly also, mm-hmm. um, not just the injustice that has happened with the, the Keith Scott case last week, but the injustice that has been happening throughout the week in the treatment of protesters. Wednesday night outside of the Omni when Justin Carr, the, the protester who was um, shot and killed, um, and there's a lot of question. people have a lot of questions around that. Some witnesses are really disputing whether or not it was a protester who killed Justin Carr or one of the police, but something that is not in dispute by the witnesses and the protesters who were there, is that the protest was peaceful until the police came with riot gear and cornered people in the Omni and started throwing tear gas at people. Mm-hmm. So so it's not just a, a question of our constitutional right to bear arms, but also our, our constitutional right to free speech, our constitutional right to assembly in public spaces and protest. Um, and especially when you take into account that people that what people are protesting is violence from the police. So, right. so having police respond violently to a protest against police brutality, that raises even larger questions. But then again, I feel like sometimes that even when we see that on television, we be, a lot of people become so inured to it that they mm-hmm. don't grasp that they don't grasp the irony, frankly, of it. And I think sometimes symbolism, especially I mean, think back to your protest last your action in Charleston. Symbolism has real power. And I'm thinking possibly, maybe, young Ziana's speech could be a symbol of exactly what the problems that, you know, everyone on the streets has been trying to articulate. Absolutely. And I think that's why her voice has had so much power, because, I mean, people have been speaking for a week saying essentially what she was saying, but there's just nothing as powerful as a child standing up in that place of power, speaking directly to the people in power. We have seen the city and the state show more concern for the property in Uptown than for the lives of the people who are living in the margins. That was Bree Newsom, an artist, activist, and founding member of the Charlotte Grassroots Organizing Committee, Tribe. She spoke with our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith. Charlotte Uprising is another activist network in the city. And for a different conversation that looks at what they've been up to, our politics writer, Marcus Ellsworth, spoke with organizer Ashley Williams about where they want to see progress out of this horror. So how are you doing today, Ashley? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, uh, can you tell us about the demands that Charlotte Uprising has put forward so far? Absolutely. So we came up with these demands after the killing of Keith L. Scott. Um, and these are demands, however, that we've been working on in our community since before the killing of Keith Scott. One of the demands that we added recently is the uh, resignation of our police chief, uh, Kurt Putney, and our mayor, Jennifer Roberts, here. Um, and so that's another demand that we've added since Tuesday. And why did you add that demand calling for the resignation of the mayor and the chief? Around three or four days into the uprising and into the nightly turnups and protests, um, it was clear to us that the mayor was not being fully transparent with the information around the Keith L. Scott murder, as well as issues around the body camera footage. 
same goes for the police chief. The police chief has actually gone on record saying that he promised transparency, but not full transparency. The public received a body camera video. However, the video lasts down for around the first 23 seconds. It wasn't the full video, and it was pretty much doctored. So as far as we're concerned, that demand still hasn't been met. Um, and one of our demands, which is the first one, we wanted an end to the state of emergency, the curfew, and we want the National Guard removed. Um, so while the curfew has gone away, um, the National Guard is still very much present here, protecting places like Bank of America uptown, as well as the police department uptown. So those are still problems for us. How has the city of Charlotte responded as far as the officials um, beyond the mayor? Has there been any support from anyone in power in the city? Um, in terms of the city government, we feel like they've been nothing but repressive. Um, and But the people of Charlotte, um, they're learning more about what these demands are, why they're demands, and they're making decisions to support us more, more fully in ways that are comfortable for their lives. And the city, you know, they continue to turn up on us in, in terms of being repressive. So we have a slew of trainings and opportunities that people can gather this fight that don't look like protesting. Um, and what we found is that, you know, the city, the police, um, the mayor, they don't like us being organized. You know, they have issues with us kind of even showing up with like gas masks to protect ourselves and handing them out to other people who are with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the same way, they're really upset about us, like being there in the middle of the night to welcome people who get out of jail to go take them food, things like that. Um, so some of the things that we've seen in terms of that solidarity repression is um, they will lock down the jail after we, you know, after one of our folks comes out and we, you know, hug them and, and go get them food. They'll lock down the jail such that the folks who are going to be in jail, you know, perhaps they don't get to go outside that day, things like this. Or, um, you know, we used to be able to use the bathroom in the jail as we were providing legal solidarity and jail support. Now, you know, when they see us coming, they don't let us use the bathroom and things like that. So they're finding these ways to attack our people on the inside and on the outside. Um, And that is important to us because we're a group that's working on prison abolition. And we've been really relentless in uh, being about that work and about that life. And so they are really just, like trying to get to us right now. And and to be clear, there are people uh, involved with Charlotte Uprising who have been arrested since the protest started. Absolutely. Okay, and, that, and those are the folks, primarily the folks that you're talking about with the going to the jail to welcome them on their way out and, um, and getting yeah. support for. We've made it clear that like folks connected with the uprising were demanding full amnesty and a dropping of charges. Um, and so when we say connected, we're using that term loosely. So if you got locked up in in relationship to what is happening in Charlotte this these weeks. Like we are going to do our best to get you out of jail. And I'm proud to say that we've gotten, you know, a majority of the folks who've been locked up, we've gotten a lot of them out of jail and I'm really proud of our efforts in that way. Wonderful. I'm glad that you're making progress on that front. You talked also a little bit about um other strategies that aren't just protests. I mean, I know that a lot of the press does focus on the protests because they're very visible and, you know, they're, they're exciting to watch on television. But there are other parts to this strategy, too. What other ways are y'all uh, pushing for the, for the change you see that needs to happen in Charlotte? So we're having a lot of community meetings and we're meeting with other folks in the community who we don't already work with. Last night, there was a beautiful side of resistance 
um, during the community meeting that we had in North Charlotte, which is a part of the city where Keith L. Scott was murdered. Um, and so there we talked about, like, we asked the community members who came questions, like, why are you here and why do you think Charlotte Uprising is important? And then where do we go from here? And I was mentioning to one of my other uh, accomplices that, like, the, the people that we were able to gather in that room, we otherwise would not have access to these folks. So a lot of these folks were like folks with jobs or in business and things like that, or folks connected with the government. We actually had the mayor pro tem in that meeting last night, which was very interesting when we demanded the resignation of our boss. Um, anyway, we didn't have, we didn't have access before these folks before then. Um, and now they want to talk to us or at least listen to us. So that's something that's important for us. So we're we're kind of like using those as opportunities to let people know what we're all about and let people know that of the work that we've been doing before Charlotte Uprising. So we're, you know, thinking in line with Tuesday, last Tuesday, but we're also thinking more in line with like, okay, what have we done historically to educate our community? And um, we've got opportunities for folks to plug in in terms of legal support and jail solidarity, which is what I mentioned earlier. Um and, and things like that. So I feel confident that there are opportunities for folks to plug in outside of the nightly turn-up. Wonderful. It, it appears that this is a movement that isn't just focused on this one incident within the Black community. It, it looks, from the outside, it looks like Charlotte does have this, this long-standing, diverse coalition of leadership. Um, how did how did that come together? Like how how did all these different groups, all these different ideologies, um, pull together so quickly in response? I know that one of the things that we did going or starting out was like, okay, so while we have these differences and while we live in different places of town, like how can we understand the implications of white supremacy, capitalism? gentrification, how can we understand, how do we understand those and how do those things impact us? And so once we were able to acknowledge white supremacy and capitalism, for example, as like a common threat between undocumented folks, between black people, between indigenous folks, we were able to get on the same page a little bit about what, how we ought to act and like how we ought to act together. Um, and so for us, you know, that looks like showing up at the Department of Homeland Security when our Latinx um, siblings um, are protesting there, um, are protesting unjust deportations. It also looks like us as like black folks going into our homes and, and letting people know, you know, down the street here, they are locking up children at their bus stop. Um, so that they can deport them. Like, that mm. is an issue. And also, I think, like, we have to realize we, so the, the, the trans folks, the workers, the students, the undocumented folks, the indigenous folks, the black folks, the disabled folks, we live in the same communities. And the way I've been explaining it is, like, when a black man is removed, is killed for being black and he is removed from the community, that affects me. When there are undocumented children that are being removed from my community, that affects me. Um, and so explaining it to people like that, so like starting with that common oppressor or that common threat, we can like get to a common goal more easily. And so I think we've done that here. What's the, what's the road ahead look like for Charlotte Uprising, for the people of Charlotte? What do you feel... What do you feel the future has in store for y'all? I think that we are um, building a community where folks are thinking less about us needing police and they're thinking more about protecting and serving one another. 
I think we're becoming more educated and strong about what it's like to be black or undocumented or poor and living here in Charlotte. And then I also hope that we are providing ways for folks to plug in who have always wanted to get down with the movement for black lives, but didn't know how or where. Um, I hope that we are showing folks like we have a place for you um, and we have plenty for you to do. And what, and it's just a matter of you telling us what you want to do. I think that we're going to get free. That was MTV politics writer Marcus Ellsworth in conversation with community organizer Ashley Williams. You can find more information about Charlotte Uprising at charlotteuprising.com. Comics journalist Sarah Glidden, that is, a graphic artist who depicts true events, loves a challenge. Her first book was called How to Understand Israel in 60 Days or Less. Her latest book, Rolling Blackouts, might outdo that. In this interview with MTV News style editor Haley Malatek, Glidden covers the challenge of creating good journalism in Iraq during the war, the ensuing refugee crisis, and the journey of a former U.S. Marine returning to the Middle East as a civilian. Sarah, hi, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Sarah's latest book, out from Drawn and Quarterly in October, is called Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Sarah, tell us a little bit about this book. Uh, So these friends of mine who had started this journalism collective Um, They always came back with these really interesting stories, and as they kept on doing their work, I became more and more interested in how journalism happens. Um, What is a fixer? How do you find an interpreter? How do you find your stories? And I really had in the back of my mind that I would love to do a book where I go with them on one of their reporting trips and kind of document how they do their work. Pretty early on, you asked Sarah Studeville for her definition of journalism, and she says that it's anything that is informative, verifiable, accountable, and independent. And I thought that was pretty, like, great and all-encompassing and exactly what her project does. Um, Did you personally agree with that definition, and did it influence the way you worked with them as you were writing this book? Um, Yeah, I think I agree with her. Uh, Journalism, there are many different kinds of journalism. Um, you know, I think a friend of mine, Lisa Hannawalt, she does really funny comics, and she, um, but she also sometimes does kind of funny restaurant reviews and movie reviews. And to me, that's a form of journalism as well, because it's talking about something true. It's informative. Um, you know, some of her imaginings might not be verifiable, but um, I think that, yeah, journalism can be many things and, you know, being truthful and not deceiving, I think, is one of the most important pillars of journalism. And from there, you can really go a lot of places with it. Was accuracy as important to you as, you know, 
sending back maybe like a feeling or a sensibility of what it was that you experienced when you were traveling? Accuracy was very important to me, <laughs> in part because I think comics journalism, even though it's been around for a while, you know, we have really established cartoonists like Joe Sacco who have been putting out amazing work for, you know, a couple decades. But it really is still new to a lot of people. And like I said before, people don't know if they should take it seriously. So I think it's our responsibility as people working in comics journalism to do the best job that we can to really show people that this is journalism, this is actual factual information. Um, It's not just a feeling, you know, it's not kind of historical fiction or anything like that. Um, So it was important to me. And when it came to the dialogue, you know, probably about 98% of the dialogue in the book is taken directly from the recordings that I made. There were times when I couldn't have the recorder on, I took notes, or there were like, you know, um, flashbacks that I can't remember exactly what we were saying 10 years ago. Do you think there are any specific freedoms that you get as somebody who's a comment journalist? Hmm, Freedoms. Well, I think one of the great things about doing journalism with comics is that when people see you drawing a picture, they're drawn to that. There's something about picture drawing that is really different from, you know, photography or from just taking notes. I think that people are drawn to hand-drawn images in a way, and there's a certain, like, rapport that you can build up with someone if you're drawing their portrait that, you know, they're looking into your eyes while you're drawing them, and that creates, like, a certain connection that builds trust, and trust is one of the most important things in journalism. You know, the person that you're talking to has to trust you to take their story and be careful with it. And also, you know, for a reader, I think that comics journalism, you can show a lot of details just there in the frame that if you were reading something, you know, it might take longer to explain that thing, or you might not even want to explain it at all. It's kind of like the show-don't-tell thing. Um, you know, an example I can think of is when we were traveling in the Middle East, I really noticed how um, how ubiquitous the white plastic lawn chair was. The kind of like, and it's very hard to draw, actually, <laughs> if you try to, but it's everywhere. And that's something that's so common here as well. And so I liked including that in the frame as much as possible because I wanted someone to who was reading the comic to see okay, this is a very different place from what I've experienced. Maybe it's even a refugee camp, something that I've never seen in my life. But they have that white plastic lawn chair, too. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about the book itself. Um, You named it after the literal concept of rolling blackouts, which is, you know, controlled pauses within electrical power systems to avoid complete power failure. What was the significance of that concept to your book? Well, When we were in northern Iraq, that was when we were experiencing the rolling blackouts. The city, Suleimania, that we were in, yeah, has these controlled rolling blackouts. And I was very uh, interested in the fact that the first time it happened, we were in the hotel, and we all kind of had a startle reaction to it. But everyone else who was around us, who were Iraqi and who lived there, people just kept going as if nothing was happening, Um, you know, even though it was dark and the emergency lights go on. And it was interesting to me you know, how people get used to the kinds of disruptions that, you know, um, political instability can create. And we got used to it, too, very quickly. Um, But more than that, rolling blackouts, to me, it made me think about memory and about forgetting. And those things are really part of storytelling. 
you know, every time we're telling a story, we are either omitting things purposefully or maybe we're think remembering things in a different way than they actually happened. Um, you know, memory is an act of creation. Every time you tell a story or even remember to yourself something that happened, you are actually recreating that little narrative of something in your life. And, you know, for me, rolling blackouts made me think of that, made me think of like the um, dynamism of memory and of the stories that we tell. Um, was there a moment in the book that was particularly difficult for you to write or create? Yeah, I think that, you know, when you're a journalist and you're conducting an interview, or even me as the observer watching these interviews being conducted, like, your job is to kind of distance yourself and be able to listen without letting your own emotions get in the way. You know, we were there listening to ex some extremely sad stories about things that people had been through, about, you know, refugees being seeing members of their family killed, having to leave home, like leaving everything behind and kind of living in limbo. And so while we were there, you know, you have to keep your composure. But then later, you know, years later, when you're drawing a scene, those emotions come back. Um, so for example, we went to the home of this fixer that we were working with, um, this Iraqi guy. Um, and he invited over a whole bunch of his friends, these Iraqi refugees um, who were, you know, mostly middle class. They were doctors, pharmacists, and they had all left their homes. And we were talking to them for several hours and, you know, the, these harrowing stories. And then there was this one woman in particular who Sarah was interviewing her, asking her questions. And then at the end of, you know, asking the questions about, like, when did you come here? Like, what? you know, tell me about what happened. She asked, do you have any other questions that you want me to ask you about? And this woman was like, you know, she had questions for Sarah. She said, you know, why did the Americans do this? They set fire to our country. You know, they killed mothers. They killed sons. Um, you know, we didn't do anything to deserve this. There are many other countries doing worse things than Iraq. Why did you come here? Like, why did you do this? And you know, at the time that it was happening, it was very intense. But like I said, I kept that distance. And when I was drawing it, it just like, you know, even talking about it kind of makes me feel like really choked up because it was just such this powerful um, moment of this really woman asking a very good question, you know, and we don't have an answer for her because, you know, it seems it really does seem like there was no reason for it. It was just a horrible, horrible mistake. Um, so Definitely when you're drawing these things, it's so difficult. You're, um, and you're kind of internalizing that person's emotions. Um, something that a lot of cartoonists will recognize is when you're drawing someone making a face, you start unconsciously making that face. So if you're drawing like a smile or a weird grimace, like you'll stop yourself and notice that you're smiling or you're making that weird grimace. And that applies too to like people who are experiencing these really intense emotions like this woman, like, you know, and you kind of feel like, well, so what? Like, so I was a little, I was sad while I was drawing something. You know, it's nothing compared to what that woman is feeling. But, you know, we all have feelings. Like, you know, you're not made of stone. That was Sarah Glidden, cartoonist and author, and Haley Mlatek, MTV News style editor. Drawn and Quarterly will release Glidden's latest graphic novel, Rolling Blackouts, Dispatches from Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, on October 4th. 
We're going to return to Marcus Ellsworth one more time this week to take us home, as he so often does, by taking us to church. From Chattanooga, Tennessee, here's MTV News resident poet with a piece on shame and justice. There are those who will try to shame you if you dare to raise your voice in defiance. They'll call you out as a bleeding heart for daring to stand in alliance with those trying to change the world. They say every social justice warrior is just a special little snowflake complaining about every little infraction only for attention's sake while they whine about your genuine pain. See, they're a sensitive lot the apathetic and the gleefully cruel, bulking and barking at shadows of grief as they nihilistically fuel engines of paradoxically adamant apathy. Such strange pride in saying nothing. But you, who fight back regardless, body-checking privilege, knowing how hard this world's gonna cry foul when you say you want your freedom now. You're not a special little snowflake. That belittlement's a mistake. You're the first sign of a blizzard. Your warning cry was misheard by those who missed the chance to not be caught in your avalanche. Maybe that's why they rage and try to rattle your cage, calling compassion weakness, thinking strength is meanness because it's so easy to act tough and sit on the sidelines doing nothing. It's a shame they try to blame you for the problems you face. It's a shame they think they can tame you or put you in your place. It's a shame that they stay the same while the world awakens to your force. But it's their shame, not yours. That'll do it for us this week. If you'll excuse me, I'm off to crawl on my stomach onto a bed of ice and fantasize about a career in radio somewhere colder. Minnesota, call me. From Los Angeles, I'm Holly Anderson. Those are the stakes, and we'll see you again early next week. Check in with us Tuesday night after the vice presidential debate for another rapid response edition of Stakes After Dark or SAD. In the meantime, stay frosty out there. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.